Sometimes the people you don't even know have the biggest impact on your life. For example, I used to think that my great-great-grandfather, so much stories revolved around him. He was a general in the Tsar's army and he was assassinated by Bolsheviks. But actually he wasn't. I found out later he was actually trying to escape the Tsar and was assassinated by the Tsar's people himself. And you know, and there's all kinds of things that have influence on us that we don't even understand, including a lot of the shows we watch on Hollywood and the images and the stereotypes and the tropes and the characters. Where do these people even come from? Where did we get this idea, for example, of like the spicy hot Latina or the dour conniving Arab? These stereotypes, where do they come from? Well, today we're going to also delve in to a character you've probably never heard of, but ha has affected profoundly the world we live in, not just the movies we watch and the characters and how they're portrayed, but immigration. The guy's name is Frank Lactine, uh, and we covered him last episode in the first episode about how his he surprisingly rose to become the first real Hollywood villain from working in a sweatshop in Massachusetts, having immigrated from Lebanon to becoming kind of the first stereotype of an Arab. And I talked to the journalist Omar Mualim, who like me had this strange relationship with a distant relative who he found out some surprising things about that kind of changed his attitude. And in the second part, what we're going to discuss is Omar's quest to find out more about Frank Lactine. In the first episode, we traced his rise. He was a, a well-known character actor. He was a villain. We talked about this clip from Hawk of the Hills where he plays a quote-unquote half-breed and he played a lot of Native Americans in these early films. He also played a a, a stereotype that's kind of lost now. I think it's called the Chinese heavy, sort of an enforcer. It's vaguely East Asian. He also sort of lost his popularity and he, his career went into a decline. It's kind of sad. And um, it was another part of Lactine's story that is really, really troubling. And we're going to get into that. So just stay right there. You're listening to History X, the show about what they didn't teach you in school. I'm your host, Russell Cobb. And History X broadcasts from the mighty, mighty CGSR 88.5 in Amiskwichiwa, Skygun, Edmonton, Treaty 6 Territory, Canada. We're also available in the podcast format. You can check us out on your favorite podcast provider. Like us, subscribe, leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Because without you, we wouldn't know what kind of weird, obscure histories to dig into. But we got this one. This one, the most unlikely story you've ever heard about Hollywood and the nefarious effects it had on immigration laws in the United States. 
I pick it up right now with Omar Mualim, who's going to pick up the story about how Lactine, Lactine's presence and Lactine's figures contributed to some propaganda, anti-immigration propaganda in 1917. Here's Omar. That he was already built to capture sort of the, the American imagination of what a bad guy looked like, especially at the in the early 1900s at the height of nativism and, and xenophobia. I mean, this was, um, he got a career boost from the breakout of the First World War, from, um, you know, the, the sort of yellow peril hysteria. Um, you know, this is this is the era of birth of a nation, right? And we, we think of birth of a nation, or maybe the eternal Jew as these uh, anomalous, um, you know, violent racist movies of the time, but uh, really they were part of a much larger canon. Some some of these movies that were called preparedness films, um, for all intents and purposes, were government propaganda. Um, I don't know if they were officially supported by the government, but they were created basically to do the government's bidding. Um, one of them called The Yellow Menace, this was one of Frank Lactine's first roles. He actually got it by uh, after he was discovered in Montreal, um, he would he would start going to New York on the train. New York was the center of Hollywood for a few more years until, I guess there was no Hollywood. It was the center of the film industry for a few more years until Hollywood sort of captured it. He would go there and he would walk onto sets uh, or into studios and basically like ask for a job and his face would get him it. So one of them was this movie called The Yellow Menace and he played... Um, his his character's name is just Chinese heavy, um, but he was aiding uh, all these other sort of pan-Asian villains in murdering a U.S. senator who was championing this fictitious anti-Asian immigration bill that was almost identical to a real one that was circulating through Congress at the time of this that this movie was being made. It was clearly being made to boost support for this bill. Um, wow. And wow. so, you know, this, this movie, some of the, the reviews on it were, you know, it was hailed for its insight into the, quote, cunning, scheming character of the plotting Oriental. But this, yeah, I mean, this movie boosted support for the 1917 Asiatic Bard Zone Act, which effectively cut a quarter million Asian immigrants off from their homelands, including Arab, Arab Asians or, or you know Middle Easterns, uh, Middle Easterners, and it, I mean it, it, it might have been uh, one of the reasons why his his mother, who we haven't talked about, um, was never able to come to to America. I'm not sure what the what the story is there. Um, I'm pretty confident he never saw her again. She died uh, in the early 1940s, but um, you know if. Theoretically, if he were to try to visit her in Lebanon, he might not be able to return. That that was what the consequences of that law were. What what could have benefited his career actually had detrimental effects on on his community. Very, very much so. Very much. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder what you what you make of that. I'm I'm sort of of two minds. Um, on one hand, you know, I understand the power of having a media platform and what that responsibility 
means um, and what my my sort of societal responsibility is. And so I would never, um, I like to think I would never uh, take a job opportunity that uh, I thought was malicious toward my toward my community um, or or any cultural community, but you know, especially mine. I, I would not intentionally do that. And you know that he never used uh, his platform to correct the misconceptions of his people or any marginalized people he exploited and that he only perpetuated them. That disappoints me a little bit with this like genealogical discovery. On the other hand, I also think that he was an immigrant in survival mode. Um, and I, I appreciate the kind of moral compromise that that can create. Um, even though he was, even though he was famous, um, and he, maybe he was wealthy early in his career, after the silent era, he actually mostly struggled. I mean, there was a time when he moved in with his brother. Um, he he died poor. He died um, kind of in desperate circumstances. His career is actually quite tragic after the mm. silent era. He was rarely quoted. I, I actually was desperately looking for something in his words, trying to get a sense of his mindset. And all I found were a couple of quotes in newspapers where he was usually trying to, like I said, um, come across as people pleasing and and always sort of spin things in his favor. Um, you know, he he bragged about how he used extreme dieting to preserve his gaunt features. Uh, because he still believed into the 1950s that his face was his fortune. I also think that there's a possibility that that he was uh, that he was going hungry, um, and that he was sick, and that this was his way of of trying to to find cover. Let's take a quick break. You are listening to the Mighty Mighty CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. The show is History X. It's a show about what they didn't teach you in school. This week, we're exploring the life and times of Frank Lacteen, the most influential Hollywood star you've never heard of, with Edmonton journalist Omar Mualam. And uh, in this second part, Omar is going to take us to a, a wild turn. He's been talking about the sort of tragic life of, of Frank Lacteen and how he unwittingly contributed to a series of harsh immigration measures which barred immigrants by certain nationalities in the United States and really contributed to a terrible outbreak of nativism in the 19-teens and 1920s. Let's get back to Omar because a strange letter arrived after he published an article about Lectine. Here he is. Someone in a random... Uh, bed and breakfast in California came across this antique typewriter in their room that was just there as as sort of a, as part of the furniture and the in the in the in the uh, typewriter case which was being used to prop open a door 
uh, there was a bunch of letters and one of them was from Frank Lactine. And she read it and she looked up his name and then she found me or found the article. And then she found me on LinkedIn and said, I found this letter from your distant ancestor, Frank Lactine. Um, I thought I would share it with you. Uh, do you want me to read it to you? Yes, please. It's amazing. Please. Yeah. What, and, and what, what, time, what, what you do you have a year on this? Do you know when it was sent and to whom? Uh, it was written sometime in the mid 1960s, just a few years oh. before his death. Um, it confirms things that I had gleaned from archived production notes and oral histories that basically, I mean, after escaping the extreme hardship that he did in Lebanon and, and Lawrence and then discovering fame and fortune, his life circled back and, and he, you know, his last years were spent sick and destitute and embittered with the Hollywood system. Let me read you his letter. It is, sorry, one second. It is written to George Chandler, who was the president of the Screen Actors Guild at that time. It says, Dear Mr. Chandler, as a result of my having been in the motion picture business as an actor for over 40 years and practically a charter member of the Screen Actors Guild, my reward is only four days work within the last three and a half one years. Thanks to the Motion Picture Relief Fund, I have been able to barely exist. I was in the Motion Picture County Hospital recently, undergoing five different operations. For their help, I will be eternally grateful. However, I am now able to work and need the chance to pay back the hospital, as well as my other obligations that comes with just fighting to live even a bare existence. I'm not getting a pension from the producer's pension plan and was told that I'm not eligible for the health and welfare plan, what am I supposed to do? I have spent my entire life and earning years within one industry, the motion picture business as an actor. And now I feel that it is a moral obligation for you to help me when I need the help most. My thoughts on this matter follows. There are many big time actors that I know of who can well pay the Screen Actors Guild dues, but they don't have to. They have a lifetime membership. Why should these newcomers making big money have a lifetime membership when old timers like myself who cannot afford it without work have to pay with regular dues, have to pay the regular dues, which means taking the bread from our mouths, which we haven't even paid for. If we can't pay for the bread, how do you expect me to pay for the $45 dues the guilds say that I owe them? This is not fair. I should have a lifetime membership because of my long-standing record in the motion picture business and because of the many years I have faithfully paid my dues to the guild. Now that I am out of work and unable to pay my dues, I will not be able to work if I am expelled from the guild. If I can't work, how do you expect me to be able to pay the guild dues or the necessities of life? This is why I'm asking you to give me a lifetime membership in the Screen Actors Guild, a chance for a break to make a living. I hope to hear from you. I hope to hear from you on this important matter in the near future. Respectfully yours, Frank Lactine. Goodness gracious, where was that? That was in a bed and breakfast? It was in a it was just found in a typewriter case that was being used as a door stopper. 
Do you have any idea if, if the letter was sent and was it received? No. The letter was a draft letter. Um, it was draft letter. You can tell because there were there were errors fixed on it, um, some notes on it. I don't know. I don't know. I I've gone to the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Archives in Beverly Hills to research him. The file that they had on him was very thin. Um, most of the records that I found were from archive newspapers, from census records. Um, and I guess I found a little bit about his family and his mom from the lone record keeper in uh, Caballes, Lebanon. But uh, I have no idea. Uh, I don't know much else about his personal life. He didn't have any, ch uh, he, sorry, he did have one child. He had a, a daughter who died relatively young, um, no other children. Uh, so, you know, his, his legacy, I guess, is uh, it's, still, it's still kind of to be continued. Um, I've, I've been trying to get him the kind of recognition that I think he deserves as a, as a historical figure, both um, in representing Middle Eastern artists and also as a, as a film artist, I think that he is important to understanding the Hollywood tropes of uh, the Hollywood tropes that we've, you know, a lot of us have kind of come become accustomed to, or that we, you know, we know of. Maybe they're before our time. Um, I think he, I think he's a very important figure in in Hollywood history. So he died in 1968, about a year after the Arab-Israeli war, the, the so-called Six-Day War. And that, that war is really what accelerated the uh, radical Islamist, uh, Middle Eastern terrorist, I should say, you know, just brown terrorist um, tropes. Uh, I, I imagine that if he had lived uh, later in life, or if he lived for many more decades, that he uh, that it, it would have maybe sparked the most successful part of his career, because there's no doubt in my mind that he would have taken those roles. Um, he had over 500 screen credits. I doubt he's ever said no to a job. Um, but yeah, I mean, he when he died, like I said, struggle, you know, poor, destitute, struggling to pay rent on his one bedroom apartment. Um, you know, no, no one really took notice. I think because of what he represented, few people in the civil rights era of America would would want to celebrate him. Mm. You know, he didn't. So he didn't become uh, the subject of 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 history the way that uh, Anna Mae Wong and uh, Stephen Fetchett and Rudy Valentino did. He never got a, a posthumous. Uh, walk of fame star or get any of the sort of like retrospectives of his immigrant contemporaries. The only thing I found was this four sentence obituary in the Hollywood Reporter. Um, it made no mention of his ancestry or, or his race bending qualities or even race at all. But it made one thing very clear. He was a great villain. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what he was. And that was the only obituary that ran? I mean, it's the only one that I could find. Wow. 
Wow. I don't I don't want Frank Lactine to be canceled. I want him I want him to be remembered. You he know? already got he got it sounds like he got canceled like 80 years ago. <laughs> yeah, he I mean he kind of did. He was I mean he was canceled um he was canceled because of of political correctness in 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 the 1930s. I mean we haven't we haven't talked about this. I don't know if you want to get into it because this this just this this is like the other half of the story, right? So it's it's oh, up really? to you. There's a whole other half of the story. Well, we didn't you know we what? didn't we didn't talk about um, what happened to his career after the um, not just after the talkies era began, but it was what uh, what supplemented the talkies era was the um, the code, the Hollywood moral code. Oh, and right, this right. this is what this eventually would evolve into the MPAA rating system. But at the time it was this code of what you can and cannot do in movies. And it with the best intentions mostly had these restrictions on um, villainizing uh, other nationalities and ethnicities. Um, it was partly because they wanted to do social good. Um, it, it was largely motivated, actually, by the disparaging of um, Jewish people with with really awful Jewish tropes, and um, and so the uh, Jewish associations of that time had a big hand in improving the image of minorities. Um, but it, it also probably had more to do with American uh, diplomacy and neutrality and the fact that, you know, if, if they disparaged a certain ethnicity uh, or nationality uh, in a movie, um, there could be consequences. There, there were trade embargoes <laughs> between countries because of, um, because of Hollywood tropes. And so these codes came in to, to rein in the the racist stereotypes, but what what en ended up happening is um, you still need villains in movies, but the villains can't be people of color, at least not uh, the top villains. Um, so these roles were then just given to white people, and <laughs> it was and that so explicit. It was really that. It was really that they they really wanted to uh, make non-white people uh not the villains like they it just seems it just seems very very politically correct for uh 1930s hollywood but i guess yeah i go ahead it was i mean i could i could read it for you if you want yeah, yeah go ahead so the code had a clause called the national feelings clause <laughs> yeah i know a great already off to a great start right um and it said quote the history institutions prominent people and citizenry of all nations shall be represented fairly and so the guy that was in charge of enforcing the code joseph breen um he created this system systematized way of ensuring that uh you know, 
that the history institutions, prominent people in citizenry of all nations uh, were fairly represented. You would have to submit your script to, uh, to the office, um, which would eventually evolve to become the MPAA. Um, and they would go through that script and they would give you a report and tell you what to fix. And so for example, um, this movie that I have uh, called The Law of the, Law of the Tongue, um, which Frank Lectine was in, supporting this Fu Manchu lusting after this like sweet American woman caught up in a Chinese smuggling ring or opium ring <laughs> or both. Um, so, you know, an example from that report would be, you know, eliminate the underlined words, and then it would quote the dialogue, which would say, um, there's no way for me to say this in a radio interview without saying uh, a racist pejorative. So I just am gonna, you know, content warning here. Uh, so it would say, eliminate the, the, the underlined words. You were too good to work in my dance hall, but you're not too good here's the underlined words, to live with a bunch of chinks. So they would take out a bunch of chinks and change that to whatever. And if they did that, if they promised to do that, it would get approval. Um, and this, this, was, this was all you know, mostly done because of the uh, Chinese sensitivities, especially were, were done because um, a movie, a Yellow Peril movie, had actually sparked a riot in Shanghai. Um, there were, you know, there were serious foreign policy consequences. Um, I, I, another thing that he introduced Joseph Breen to this system. Um, by the way, he was nicknamed John the Baptist of the Code Administration because of his adherence to like guidelines and institutional memory. Um, he was just like the bureaucrat of all bureaucrats. Um, he he created these uh, report cards on all the the speaking characters, or uh, sorry, he created these report cards on all the characters with speaking roles. And there were three columns. It would say, you know, sympathetic, not sympathetic, or neutral. And you know, whenever there was someone from a, a different ethnicity, you'd have to like mark were they sympathetic, not sympathetic or neutral. And if there were too many, you know, unsympathetic, um, it could, you know, it, it could come back to you and you could be required to change it. Mannerisms. Only the Grand Vizier and myself ever get close enough to Kasim to really know him. And Yusef Ben Khan won't live long enough to realize a substitution. So be it. One hour from now we shall meet at the secret gate. Um, so Joseph Breen's report card, you know, he picks it, picks apart this movie, uh, you know, piece by piece, but his, he doesn't seem at all concerned with the treatment of Arab culture. He takes umbrage with the treatment of animals and he, <laughs> and especially with like, he has a preoccupation with the female anatomy. So a few of his bullet points include um, intimate portions of their bodies must be properly covered. He's talking about the belly dancers and concub concubines here. Uh, intimate portions of their bodies must be properly covered. Uh, in order to be acceptable, the routine showing the dancing girls doing their stuff, quote, doing their stuff, 
must not contain any bumps or grinds. My guest has been Omar Mwalem, who has been telling us about the story of the tragic story of Frank Lactine in the context of the development of stereotypes in Hollywood about Arabs and Arab Americans. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Omar, could you tell us about your book really briefly again, please? Sure. My book is called Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas. And it is a travelogue about uh, 13 mosques from Brazil up to the Arctic uh, and the communities that built them and how those uh, communities influenced uh, the Western Hemisphere in ways that we've forgotten or ignored. Well, uh, speaking of bumps and grinds, I took a real bump here at the end of this interview as I'm going to play for you. It's completely off topic, but Omar requested it uh, in the middle of our discussion. My chair just completely fell apart and I fell down hard. I actually thought the world was coming to an end. It didn't. I just had a cheap chair. Anyway, you've been listening to History X, the show about what they didn't teach you at school on broadcast from the mighty, mighty CGSR 88.5 FM. I'm your host, Russell Cobb. Please stay in touch and enjoy this little blooper. Bye now. Responsible for, at least in part. Oh gosh, my my chair just. My, oh my god! My god, did we catch that video? About, yes, we talk did. Talk about overly suggestive. Oh wow! There goes the chair. Wow, oh. that was the most interesting thing I've watched on TV in so long. Just put that on TikTok. Oh my god, that is absolutely going on TikTok. That was amazing.